0: Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world.
1: Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my guest today is Laura Fish, who is the Chief Strategy and Planning Officer at Federation CJA, which stands for Combined Jewish Appeal. Formally trained as a lawyer, Laura spent almost 11 years as a special advisor and corporate secretary at Norton Rose Canada. One of the reasons that I wanted to bring Laura on the program today is that she has authored or co-authored a number of e-Jewish Philanthropy articles, including Building Granting Success on Five Key Principles, Five Questions to Determine Your Organizational Development Priorities, and Bringing Innovation into Mature Organizations. And it's clear to me she has a lot to say about the organized Jewish world or organizations in general. So I wanted to hear more from her about that. In addition to, she happens to live in Canada. So there's a bit about the relationship between Canadian and American Jewish communities that I wanted to explore to the extent that she is able. So with no further ado, welcome to the program, Laura. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So we'll start, as we always do, with your personal story, how you got into this position with the Federation when I'm asked this question, which as you can imagine happens fairly often
2: given the circuitous route I've taken, I always tell people that what's remarkable is that it took me this long to move to the nonprofit sector, not that I ended up here in the first place. I'm from a very unusual family. Both my parents served the public good in different ways. My mom was a special ed teacher for 35 years and a very remarkable woman. And my dad worked for the Canadian government for a long time and had the chance to have extensive impact on the country, in fact. A number of members of my extended family as well, including my great uncle, who was a successful businessman, but his heart is really in philanthropy, taught me early on that we have a responsibility to have an impact on this fine city that we live in and you know, on the Jewish world, actually on the broader world, not even focused on the Jewish world. So I grew up with this sense that it wasn't sufficient to have a nine-to-five job. In fact, nobody in my extended family has a nine-to-five job. And I had a strong, really, sense of responsibility from a young age that I was going to need to change the world somehow. It was never clear to me how, At one point, I thought of joining the United Nations, of going into politics, all the reasons that people go to law school, I guess. And then I went to law school by default, in fact, I couldn't think of what else to do. And I'm not from a family where a university degree is enough, frankly. My first intention was to save the world. In law school, I worked with Erwin Kotler, who is a name that's well known to many, certainly in Canada. I don't know if it will resonate with the U.S. audience, but Erwin, who became the Canadian Minister of Justice, was also a professor at McGill and a human rights activist on a global scale. You know, I'd be in his office and he'd be taking calls from Ellie Wiesel, just to give you some context that I think will resonate with your audience. So I worked with Irwin for two years, and I realized that changing the world requires a singular passion and focus, a sense of calling that Irwin has and had then, still has now, a willingness to put everything else aside. And as I aged, I guess I realized I wanted some balance. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to save the world like Irwin. What I'm going to do is help rich people give away their money. This is perfect. I'll be a tax lawyer. I'll help them build trusts, and then I'll help them decide where to donate their money to. Instead of doing that, I went to go practice law, tax law, at what was a firm called Dougal Renault, what's now Norton Rose Fulbright. And I practiced tax law for a few years. And then, as you mentioned earlier, I worked in law firm administration for a long time. But throughout that long period, every six months or so, I had a crisis of conscience, a discussion either with my husband or with my friend or with my great uncle and saying, this is not enough for me. I am not having enough of an impact. How am I going to leave a real legacy? You know, I'm working all these hours in order to either help people with money, get more money or help a business run more smoothly. And I gradually started thinking about what I would like to do and how I could make a difference. I had a number of conversations with people involved in the nonprofit world in Montreal, both Jewish and non-Jewish. And I received some discouraging advice, frankly. One gentleman who built one of Montreal's most successful grassroots organizations took a look at me and said, "Mm, you're not really meant for the front lines. I think you need to stay in the practice of law. You know, you'll be on a board, you'll give some of your money away, but you really should not go into the nonprofit sector. And my great uncle, who is actually 92 now, who's been probably the most significant influence in my life. Repeatedly said, You know, you are contributing to the world. You're raising your children. You're taking care of your family. You're paying your taxes. You're working hard. And that's how you'll make a difference. But somehow it was never enough. So, fast forward a number of years, I was getting tired of the law firm environment. And I was starting to have conversations with contacts and friends. And I was out for lunch with an old friend of mine. He said, Well, you know, how's work? And I said, Well, it's okay. But I'm starting to think about my next steps. And he said, oh, I have the perfect job for you. And I sort of looked at him and said, what are you talking about? He said, well, the Jewish community is looking for somebody and you're just the right profile. Can I put in your candidacy? And I said, no, I'm not going to work in the Jewish community. What are you talking about? And he said, well, you just finished telling me you want to do something with greater impact. This is a great opportunity. I said, no, no way. Anyway, he called me the next day and said, I called Deborah Korber about you. And I said, I don't know who that is. And he (laughs) said, okay, you need to go on the internet. Deborah is now and was then the CEO of Federation of Montreal, and she wants to meet you. So I said, well, I'll have breakfast with anybody. You know, I was going for an informational interview, a quick cup of coffee with somebody, which turned into a three and a half hour meeting. And I went home and I said to my very secular husband, this is really weird, but I think this woman thinks I'm going to come work at Federation. Paul, my husband said, well, I think there's something very wonderful about that. You'd be so happy. I looked at him, I said, wait, did you hear when I said Federation
1: in the sentence?
2: (laughs) That means for the Jewish community. And he said, yeah, I actually think it would make a lot of sense. Think about it. You know, you've always wanted to do some good. What community were you planning on working in? And I was like, well, those aren't my people. It's like, well, actually they are. And fast forward four and a half years later, and here I am. What I will say is after that conversation with Paul, and of course, many interviews and a lot of discussion, in looking back, it seemed so obvious that I would end up working in the Jewish community, certainly that I would end up working in the nonprofit community. I'm somebody who, you know, went on my first protest march at 10. I slept in front of the Soviet embassy. I marched on Washington to get the Jews out of the former Soviet Union. I raised money for Hillel in college. I taught a class on Jewish identity. I mean, all these building blocks, I guess, were leading me to the point of taking this role as chief strategy and planning officer. But sometimes life takes over and you forget about the plan that you had originally.
1: So what was it
2: that was that hesitation? A number of things. First of all, change is hard. In any context, and to go from a multinational law firm with, at the time, approximately 3,800 staff all over the world, to a nonprofit in Montreal working for the Jewish community, which is where I grew up in Montreal. And we're a small-ish community, so we have the sense of all knowing each other. I would say like a Pikesville or a Shaker Heights for the U.S. audience, you know, Cleveland, Baltimore, Boston. Those are the analogous Jewish communities to Montreal. And I was concerned about leaving the outside world to come work in the Jewish community and take on a more singular focus. I'm somebody who lives very proudly identified as a Jew and as a Zionist without question. Those are fundamental values both in my personal life and in my own personal philanthropy. But I had worked in a quite diverse environment my whole professional career. I have a diverse group of friends. I live in a neighborhood that is populated by people from all walks of life. My children do not go to a Jewish day school. I just did not see the Federation world as my world. Although my family has been involved in the Montreal community forever, I do not have one family member who has been involved in Federation other than as a you know, regular-sized donor for a decade. So was not an obvious choice for me.
1: So from your perspective at the time, this was an insular, self-serving community that you kind of didn't see the fingers or the threads that kind of resonated out from that.
2: I'm concerned about the use of the word self-serving. It's more that it was a part of the community that I had very little exposure to, and certainly a sense that the day-to-day at Federation would be too... I'd be living in too much of a bubble. That's the best way I could say it. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to make that choice. What I didn't realize is that my colleagues certainly are very diverse, both in their backgrounds and in their level of commitment. Religiously, we all share, of course, the passion for having an impact with a focus on the Jewish world. But Federation is a key part of the broader Montreal community and an important player in the development of philanthropy here in Montreal in a way that I hadn't realized before I came to work here.
1: So we're going to dive a little bit into your position in a moment, but I wanted to touch upon the the articles you've released. And I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of the impotence of how you got into writing those articles and what you've been seeing that was the motivation for putting out these recommendations or insights? A few
2: things. So Nanette Friedman, my co-author, is also a longtime friend. We went to college together and raised money for Hillel together, actually, which is when we really got to know each other. And so when I started working in the nonprofit sector and re-involved myself in Jewish life, I also got back in touch with Nanette. Nanette's published quite broadly. And we had many philosophical conversations about what was right and what was wrong and what I was learning on the job. There are very few resources for nonprofit professionals in Canada. Certainly in the States, the area is more developed, but it is not a saturated field. And I really felt that the experience that I had in Montreal was something that other people could benefit from. I'm quite proud of what we've accomplished here. I have an exceptional professional team and really wonderful leadership that I rely on heavily. And with them, I have identified and developed some best practices that are applicable to any granting organization. I mean, that's what I canvassed, I guess, in my latest article. But even at the beginning of my time here, when I inherited what was perceived to be less than stellar or messy visioning process, I felt it had to be said that change is hard and it comes only when all voices are heard. So what became obvious to me in being hired as a change agent and trying to bring change to a successful, traditional community that needed a little bit of push forward into this century mm-hmm. was that these things tend to build over time. When you want to bring innovation to an organization that perceives itself to be very successful, it's not good enough to have one person, one group of people, one process point in that direction. You really need multiple data points, I would say. I hate the word triangulation, but it really does make a lot of sense. And that's where I was at when Nanette and I wrote our first article together about bringing innovation into a mature organization. I was slowly learning the importance of hearing multiple stakeholders and of institutionalizing these learnings. And I felt that these were lessons that other people could benefit from.
1: I think sometimes, and even in my own work, especially for people who work in the Jewish community a lot, it's an impotence of, oh, like, this doesn't seem right. I'm going to write something about something that doesn't seem right to me or something that needs changing, as opposed to the perspective it sounds like you have where you came into something with fresh eyes. And as you were doing the work in creating these insights for yourself, you were saying, huh, I wonder if other people might, you know, right. write it from what I've been learning and wanting to disseminate and share that, which is fantastic. So that's a great segue into your job. So I'd love for you to just talk a little more about the work that you do specifically within that organization.
2: So because I'm Canadian, and I know that a lot of your listeners are American, I'm going to give a bit of context to what I do because I think that that's helpful. We're 90,000 Jews in Montreal. Many moons ago, we were the largest Jewish community in Canada. We are no longer. We're the second largest after Toronto. But we have maintained a... Very, very traditional way of life for a variety of reasons, partly because of geography, the Jews in Montreal for many decades. In fact, I should start by saying that Federation of Montreal is in its centennial year. We are currently celebrating the fact that we've been around for 100 years, but the Jewish community in Montreal has been around for over 250 years. Over the last number of decades, although we have lost numbers. We've had a fair amount of exodus either to Toronto, to other Canadian cities or across the world, certainly scattered throughout the US. But we have maintained our traditional lifestyle. We have lower intermarriage rates. We have higher number of trips to Israel. We have one of the strongest per capita campaigns in the federation movement. You know, we have between 15,000 and 18,000 donors. It fluctuates year to year. And when you take that into context in a community of 90,000, you see that federation has retained a central role in a way that is no longer common, I would say. We recently, as part of our centennial celebrations, we traveled to Israel with a mission of just under 900
1: participants. Wow. (laughs) 19
2: buses. And so quite a mission, quite a mission, quite an experience, but very much reflective of the central role that federation plays in the Montreal Jewish community. And when you pick apart the numbers even more, you see that although we're 90,000, which some Montrealers would say, oh, no, we've shrunk, the sky is falling. (laughs) <laughs> the sky has not fallen,
1: nor is it falling. The sky is always we, falling in the Jewish community. <laughs>
2: true. But what you do see and where the change has happened, and this sort of feeds into my role, is that we're a different community. One third of our community is composed of immigrants. We have 23,000 Jews who are of Sephardic origin. It's the largest French speaking Jewish population outside of France. And I think Brazil also has a high number of Jews of Sephardic origin. We have almost 8,000 Russian speaking Jews. I mean, these are numbers that have changed dramatically over the years so that we no longer have a typical Montreal Jew, Mm -hmm. which used to be, I often say, the Laura Fish version. Both my parents were born here, they were both born Jewish, they both spoke English. They both not only went on to college, but continued with their studies. I lived in a traditionally Jewish area, and I went to Jewish day school my whole life. We have inherited a community with new challenges, with more expensive needs, in a more challenging government, a context politically, in terms of government services. There's been a lot of cutbacks in social services, placing a lot of strain on Federation and its affiliated agencies. So, when I came in, I came in at a time when Federation needed to be more impact driven, focus more on where every donor dollar was going. Not that we hadn't been conscious of this in the past, but in a community with a lot of resources and very clear needs, you can manage with a less than perfect allocation system. You can manage to make decisions that are a little less based on data than they should be. But we can no longer afford that. And so I was brought in as a change agent. My responsibilities include allocation, overseeing the allocation of our annual campaign and other funds here in Montreal. I also supervise our investments in Israel, although we do have a director who reports to me. And I lead a variety of other strategic discussions and initiatives. What became quite clear in the first six months after I got over learning all the acronyms for Jewish organizations, and I kept saying, Alpha JFNA, C. repeat that to me? Okay, right. and then Karen how you said, wait a second. So who goes to who and where? That right. took a long time, frankly. Once I was done with that, I really set about rebuilding the way we invest in our community, both by restructuring at the professional level And reframing the information we were bringing to our lay committee and then changing the way we engage with our agencies from, you know, just sending them a letter saying you have X amount to spend this year, moving to a very well-developed funding agreement with clearly articulated deliverables and expectations and evaluation metrics. We're very much not there yet. It's an imperfect system.
1: Have you been getting a lot of pushback with (laughs) that?
2: Yes, we've gotten a ton of pushback. We've also brought a lot of change. But at the same time, I believe that we've done the easy part and the heavy lifting is yet to come. We have cleaned up what had to be cleaned up a lot of legacy oddities, legacy allocations, a perception. We are working to break down the perception of entitlement. We're a community like most communities that. Had based funding decisions on historical numbers for a very long time. So, campaign was up 10%, campaign was down 3%. Allocations were fairly evenly divided accordingly. We no longer do that this year for the first time. Even though we had a strong campaign and excellent results that we're all very proud of, we still cut three of our agencies either because of issues with mission alignment, lack of ability to show impact, and the need to meet other needs in the community outside of our affiliated agencies. So this year, we increased our support for survivors' emergency needs quite significantly. And we invested more heavily in some of the grassroots organizations that provide services to parts of the community that our agencies don't reach. And we're continuing to make these kinds of changes. But yes, I get tons of pushback.
1: Write more articles about this because I just, I mean, that must have been so hard. This is kind of change that I think is just so very difficult for some organizations is you have this relationship for so many years and this dependence on something of support without accountability, because that's just what you do, right? You just support organizations. And here you've been able to say, we're not actually going to support you anymore in this way because xyz actual right. very you know understandable reason <laughs> but now you've got this relationship that's so long standing that you know I'm sure there's hurt feelings and how could they do this and you know all that kind of stuff that goes along with it so Yasha <laughs> <laughs> koach thank you me.
2: it's very much a team effort i really work with an exceptional group of lay people and professionals we've been able to move the needle forward i have to stress it's not that our work is done. There is still a lot more that needs to be done. And as far as how we did it, I'm not really sure. I came in here without a strong sense of how difficult it was to bring change. And so I just did it. I used to joke that I needed a bodyguard to go through our building because in Montreal, most of our affiliated agencies have offices in the same building as Federation. And so, you know, you see the executive directors and the presidents of the agencies getting your morning coffee, which has led to some awkward moments, certainly, and some very, very unpleasant discussions. But, you know, I just said to one of my lay leaders the other day there's no crying in baseball. If the community is obviously way more important, and I don't mean to minimize, but if you think of the community as baseball, it's a business, it's a game that has to be moved forward. And I don't mean that glibly, I just mean, we should all be focused on bringing the best impact to the service users, to the clients, to Mm -hmm. the people who need it most, whether that means making sure more kids get to Poland and to Israel, or whether it means looking after our survivors' needs. And, you know, a few hurt feelings along the way just cannot stop us from continuing to meet the diverse needs in our community, especially with all the changes that we've undergone in the last number of decades.
1: Well, it also sounds like it's, very valuable feedback, right? If you keep funding at the status quo, what's the impotence for evaluating their work? And so right. I'm assuming it's not a no forever, right? It's a of course not. You know, at this not. time we don't really feel like you're being impactful and there are some new exciting innovative things that are coming up that we'd like to be a part of. If you figure out yourself and you figure out how to be impactful and you come back to us and say, look, we've revamped some stuff, we've done a lot of thinking, then there's the opportunity for resupport, but to absolutely continue to fund the status quo and not be innovative is not just hurtful for you, is hurtful for the agency or funding. And this is both an opportunity to help them say, well, maybe there are some things we need to retool or rethink about our impact in the community.
2: And I must say, there's been a number of good news stories along the way. We've very much changed the dialogue with, I would say, half of our agencies. The agencies that are stronger and have been able to show impact and articulate a clear mission have benefited from the changes at Federation as well. We have three-year funding agreements, which is something that we never had before, so that our stronger agencies can plan in three-year cycles rather than worrying from year to year what the funding is going to be. We have increased our funding to several agencies, we have eliminated duplication. We've improved our ability to partner with our agencies, which I think is critical for the service user. Frankly,
1: now are these models that you saw other places and wanted to bring to it, or are these just used? Were you like, oh, three years would be so much better than one year? Was it a collaboration thinking?
2: I inherited a wealth of information and not a lot of action items. So to say that I came up with it is completely false. I did not hatch the plan for three-year funding. There was a long visioning process that I referred to earlier called Imagine 2020, where groups of lay people and professionals had discussions and focus groups and studies and ideas about ways to improve the Montreal Jewish community. And I inherited all that information. One of the key pieces, we called them, or they were called, I wasn't here, levers at the time, one of the levers was around strategic funding. And so I inherited ideas and an exceptional lay leader who really had a passion for this kind of thing. Together, we figured out the most effective way to bring the best of these changes to our system. So originally, there was an idea of bringing all the agencies into a three-year funding cycle. And we realized after some discussion and analysis that that just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So we made a decision to treat each agency differently, which is not rocket science, certainly, but that was a watershed moment for our community because instead of saying up, down, everybody gets three years, we said, well, agency A should have a three-year funding agreement because they're strong, clear mission for a variety of reasons. And Agency B should not get its full allocation in one shot because we have concerns about how the money is being spent. We have chosen to support our strong agencies as much as we can, to work with our struggling agencies to the extent that it's appropriate. And we are trying to make some very difficult decisions about legacy programs and legacy issues that just do not resonate anymore in Montreal. And that's a big challenge. I mean, that will be the next phase.
1: You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with Ryan Offman and his new SAT math workbook. Ryan is a high school senior who created a new tool to help others study the right material to understand the SAT math exam is now looking to partner with Jewish organizations to help distribute the workbook to those who are unable to afford one. For more information about Ryan and his project, please visit ryanofman.wordpress.com. Before returning to my conversation with Laura, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Andres Spikoini, President and CEO of the Jewish Funders Network who discusses with me how his work has shaped his view of the future of philanthropy in the Jewish community. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation.
0: I've been reflecting a lot since I left the Federation, trying to systematize that thinking about why is it so difficult to reform that system, right? And there is something that I I remembered from when I was in France. At the same time that France was... Updating its phone system to digital, the African Republic of Ghana was doing the same. Now, France, to update its system, needed to put huge investment because it had a system that had last been updated in 1913, but it kind of worked. Like people talked on the phone and you have wires and you have installations and you have centrals and you have people working. And they had something called the Minitel, which was sort of a precursor of the internet that people still use. You had all those things that you had to do something with. You wouldn't jettison all that. And if right. you even if you would, it would be even expensive to dismantle. So at the same time, Ghana had to do his phone network. They just went straight to 5G, most advanced digital phone system in the world because they had nothing. So a little bit that makes you think of those legacy organizations. You have things that work. People get services from federations and people go to Israel and money gets raised and all that. So you never get to ask the question of if it didn't exist, how would I create it?
1: Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Andres in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Laura. I explore a lot on this program, the difference between the legacy organizations uh, like the one that you work for and kind of new emerging boutique organizations that have more of a niche or singular focus that are smaller and, you know, the appeal of one or the other and the future of one or the other. So are you seeing not a resurgence, but a surgence of these kind of new organizations that are popping up that are serving these unique things in the community? Or are there kind of like one or two that you're wanting to bring under your wing and help come into the fold with their new entrepreneurial ideas of how to engage Jews in your area?
2: I would say both. Both are true in Montreal. Through a variety of our granting programs, we've gotten lucky, I would say. Maybe it's not luck, maybe it's skill, but I always think there's a healthy dose of luck involved in life. And we have partnered early on with some organizations that have become more active, more relevant to the younger cohort or the less traditional cohort. The two examples that come to mind, one, I'll give a shout out to my colleague, Zev Moses, who is building and has built the Jewish Museum in Montreal. It started as a virtual museum with a grant from the Jewish Community Foundation and has morphed into a service provider and a physical location that is not only Serving the Jewish community, but serving visitors who come to Montreal, giving walking tours of areas of Jewish Montreal, helping to preserve our unique and very rich history. And so we have a great partnership with Seb and with his organization. We used them recently. We did a mega mission to Montreal where we had, I think it was 300 people touring Montreal in different ways on a Sunday as part of our centennial. And, you know, we leaned on him, frankly, to use the expertise he had grown from a grant that he got from us. So, well, from the Jewish Community Foundation. So those types of stories have given us a more open window, I would say, into innovation. We had a donor-driven initiative a number of years ago called Youth Outreach and Engagement, where we brought the Limud Festival to Montreal. And we reached really a significant cohort of less affiliated young adults through that program. Although we no longer run the festival, we've brought in the ability to program from the bottom up, which is something that we were never able to do. And I think I talk about it a bit in my first article that I wrote. We've brought in not only as volunteers or donors, but also as staff. One of the members of my team came to us through what was originally a donor-funded outreach program. Mm -hmm. So we have been able to have some flexibility in our own process and our own orbit, and we have also recognized the need for some new organizations. An affordable housing organization, for example, is being built as a partnership between Federation and one of our affiliated agencies. That said, Montreal is unusual. Federation has retained a certain centrality that I don't really think you'd see in many other communities.
1: That brings me to my next question, kind of on the both micro and macro level. And I'm curious to hear from you, your perspective on whether or not other federations are seeing this work or trying to make the same kind of changes and updates and how you kind of see your work mirrored in other federations or not.
2: One of the parts of my job that I am not great at,
1: full disclosure,
2: is traveling and seeing other federations. Although I do go to the GA every year and I do read and I do have contact with my colleagues, there has been so much heavy lifting to do locally Mm -hmm. that my focus has been very much about cleaning up and moving forward. And I'm hopeful that in this next phase, I'll really be able to do a better job of learning from other colleagues. That said, I know enough and have enough contact and perspective to be able to say that Montreal is really at the forefront of a lot of these changes. I mean, you have New York, which has a whole department built on evaluation, and we've had some professional training with them. We've done a few video calls. We visited them. And I was actually thrilled to hear that while New York is you know, on a different scale, certainly a lot of what we're doing follows very closely what they're doing. In some cities, the planning function is focused on I would say broader esoteric discussions, a lot of what is going to happen with the Jewish future rather than okay, we have ten dollars. how can we screw <laughs> it up fairly and we do not, although certainly we have a number of strategic conversations, and we do take our role as a convener very. Very seriously, and it's something we're quite proud of. We've been quite focused on getting our own house in order. I don't know if that answers your question fairly, but I guess our reality is so different from other cities. Even Toronto, which is the other large Canadian federation, the Toronto Jewish community is almost exclusively English speaking. I mean, yes, they have, of course, Russian Jews and Jews from Argentina and French, but we live in a French city we have a French population within the Jewish population. We have 15,000 Haredi Jews. In my role, I keep splitting the hairs, splitting the hairs, splitting the hairs. And then when I speak to somebody from, I'll pick on Baltimore, Cleveland, New Jersey, their reality is so different. The concerns are so different that while Mm -hmm. best practices are best practices, we've really focused on learning from other players in Montreal rather than focusing on other Jewish organizations outside of Montreal.
1: That's awesome. That's definitely a good way to look at your work when it's easy to focus on the globalism, to say that's not our responsibility and as connected as you want to be. And as you mentioned, getting advice and seeing what other people are doing, your community is unique and how you engage with it and trying to improve the connectivity of the community there. You know, I'm an American Jew, I've unfortunately never been to Canada, and I've kind of always known about this duality between the two communities, and I know a lot of organizations that are quote-unquote national organizations are quote-unquote North American organizations (laughs) because they understand the importance of involving and including the Canadian Jewish community in their work and their fold and the things that they do. But I have no idea what it's like to be... (laughs) A Canadian (laughs) Jew, and what that relationship looks like between your work and your life and your perspective and what that relationship looks like with the American Jewish community. So of only your own experience, I'd just love for you to talk a moment about what that's like for you. I have an interesting perspective because
2: I did my undergraduate degree in the States. So I've been a Jew living in both the U.S. and Canada, although, you know, at the time I was a kid, an undergrad. I'll go in order. In terms of organizations that are national or North American, somebody once told me that the Canadian market is considered so irrelevant for many U.S. companies that CNN throws in advertising for all of Canada as a freebie if you advertise on CNN in New York.
0: (laughs) Just (laughs) to give you the context (laughs) for
2: this scale, you know, the U.S. is in size, in heft, in population, very, very different than Canada. And so organizations that are meant to be North American that are really American, that does not fuss me at all, frankly. The experience of being a Jew in Canada rather than in the U.S., you know, to me, it's very different for a variety of reasons. First of all, we're a very traditional community. I mentioned that earlier. When I went away to school, and you know, some of my roommates and friends were Jewish and they thought I was like the most religious person they had ever met in their entire life <laughs> because I went to synagogue on the high holidays and had Friday night dinner as a family and my parents kept a kosher home. The fact that I spoke Hebrew was sort of mind-blowing for people right. because I'm otherwise very secular. In Montreal, I am typical of a Montrealer of my generation in my level of observance that I grew up with our commitment to Israel. Again, Montreal is a very, very Zionist community. I forget the numbers, but a very high number of people in my age group have been to Israel at least once. And I don't think that in the U.S. there is this same middle ground. You know, it seems, and I think we know this from the Pew study and anecdotally, that the non-Orthodox American Jew is struggling much more with his or her Jewish identity than the non-Orthodox Montrealer. I mentioned before we have lower intermarriage rates. It's changing. We will catch up with you eventually. I hope not, but certainly possible. But our starting point is a more traditional starting point. And also the Canadian identity is very different from the American identity. Most Americans are American first. Right. You know, I'm Canadian first, but not really. I argue with my kids about this all the time, because I say, well, I'm a Jewish Canadian. They're like, ma, you're Canadian. Well, yeah, I'm Canadian, but it's an accident of birth. I could have been born anywhere, you're right? You know, I'm very proud of Canada, and I think it's a wonderful country, and I have a lot of confidence in the country. But... I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Like on Canada Day, which is our 4th of July, I do not have barbecue. It could be that I am barbecuing on Canada Day, but it is not like the red, white, and blue, fireworks, (laughs) break out the cool whip cake.
1: Yeah, there are some interesting articles (laughs) and reporting around the 150 that really highlighted the difference in identity and really just saying Canada is very proud of its multiculturalism. And, you know, variety of identities, less so the rah-rah around one symbol, one flag. We were never meant to be a melting pot. That's just not the way
2: that the country was built. And I think you see that in terms of the way Jewish identity has evolved in Canada versus Jewish identity in the States. It varies greatly. I mean, it's very personal. Certainly my experience of being a Jew here is very different from my friends in the States.
1: So if we were a national North North American organization wanting to engage Jews in Canada, what would you tell us? I
2: think that the American organizations do a fairly good job of engaging the Canadian communities. I do think that's a fact. The Canadian dollar at par would really make a lot of sense. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but every conference that we go to in the States, every professional development opportunity... The Canadian dollar was at 74 cents US earlier this year. So it's just exponentially more expensive. And in the nonprofit world where, you know, there's not enough money spent on professional development, there's not enough money spent on opportunities for our teams to learn when I have to look at my budget and say, okay, you could go to this conference. It's, you know, the fees are $1,200 US, that's 1,800 Canadian. I mean, it's... Right. And that same problem comes up with our children's participation in March of the Living and going to the GA and all of these things that are essential to being integrated in North America.
1: That's definitely an interesting thing to keep in mind. So you feel a part of it, but there's still kind of some of these barriers In your work in general, what advice would you give for Jewish professionals, both in Canada and in the States? I would say I have three pieces of advice.
2: One is that the most direct way is almost always the best way. Knowing that in community things are not linear and you can't always get from point A to point B in exactly the way that you want. In terms of speaking and presenting and sharing information... To me, the direct way always wins, even when it's uncomfortable, even when you don't want to look at your executive director from one of your agencies and say, actually, you really didn't do a good job. You know, there's a respectful way to do that. Saying the difficult thing, identifying the elephant in the room is always the best way. The second thing I would say is we have a tendency to talk to ourselves. A lot of Jewish organizations talking to other Jewish organizations. There is a lot of very important, very interesting, very thoughtful work going on in the nonprofit world outside of our community. And if we want to bring the best practices, the best ideas, the best professionals to the Jewish community, we have a responsibility to build those relationships and to learn at every opportunity, not only to hear our own voices. And finally, I would say it's essential not to lose sight of why you come to work every day right there's a lot of frustration and difficulty and challenges in any job by the way the private sector is no better but if you remember every day that you are doing this because you want to have an impact it really makes the bad stuff much easier
1: to deal with right Fantastic. So, how do you do it? You mentioned a husband, you mentioned children, <laughs> you mentioned that your family is not a 9 to 5 job type of person. I am not a 9 to 5 job type of person. So, how do you keep a balance? How do you get everything done that you're you're hoping to get done as you change the world? I have
2: a lot to say about this.
1: First of all, there is no balance and it's not perfect.
2: Like let's just get that out there. There right. is no perfection. I have two kids, they're teenagers now, 16 and 14, and I've been married for almost 20 years. You know, I definitely have a personal life and an extended family and friends. And my sister, who's in a similar situation, I always say, it's not pretty. Like you can't do all this and also have the camp stuff labeled exactly (laughs) when it's supposed to be on time. You can't also do this and have a home-cooked meal every night. My husband also works more than full-time and travels quite often. So it's not like he's, I mean, occasionally he's home making supper, but often neither of us is home making supper. There's ordered in pizza and craft dinner for supper in my life. Not everything is a balanced meal. Sometimes Shabbat could be ordered in. It is not beautiful. I don't really see it as a choice. I just see it as a reality. Like most of the universe lives in a context where Either they're on their own or both adults present in the household need to work. It's important to recognize that it's not a lifestyle choice. It's just reality. I guess that's what I would say. And in terms of how I do it, well, I do it because we're very much equal partners in my house. Not to say that there's stuff that I do that my husband doesn't do, but there's tons of stuff that he does that I don't do. And my kids don't know it any other way. So, they're not like calling me and saying, Why aren't you picking me up? They're calling me and saying, or texting me and saying, arrived home. Are you home for supper? Is there something in the freezer? Right. You know, their expectations are different. This was hilarious. My kids are in summer camp now, but in the last month of school, my son had an orthodontist appointment and it was his first one. He was getting braces. So, I went with him to the orthodontist and sat in the waiting room. And then he had a problem with his. I can't remember what, I think it was his leg. And he had to go to the doctor right after. We were driving from the orthodontist to the doctor. And he said, oh, mom, thank you so much for driving me. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are, which first of all makes me sound like a terrible mother, right. but <laughs> also reflects the reality the of my house. Kids. <laughs> It also reflects the reality in my house. Both my kids have an understanding that we both work. Mm -hmm. And often I have to be at the office to do my work. So they know that they come first. There is no question. Like I am not shy about it. I miss work things to be with my children, but I also miss personal events to be at work. That means that when I have a 7.30 meeting, I mean, now they're big, but I've been in this job for five years. So my son was like nine when I started, I guess. I sometimes have to be at work at 7.30 in the morning and my husband is sometimes not home. And so, you know, I'd arrange a lift for them and they'd have breakfast and get themselves out the door. Mm -hmm. Like that's not fabulous. It's not amazing. I don't know that every piece of homework got done the way it was supposed to, but that's life. And frankly, I think we're all better off for it. And the other thing I'll say is in all this mess that is my day-to-day life, and there are certainly some weeks where I'm like, oh my God, I'm so exhausted. How did this happen? And then either my husband or my sister or friend will say, well, have you like, considered what you did this week? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like you're not anemic, you're yeah. just tired. In all that, I do very much take the time to breathe and look after myself and be kind to myself And, you know, I'm taking tons of vacation this summer and I watch crappy TV on Netflix. I don't work on the weekend if I don't have to. Once I'm home, yes, of course, I check my emails and I'll do a phone call if I have to. But I am present in my house when I am in my house. And that is my gift to myself
1: because Mm -hmm. this is a
2: job that could really take over every waking moment. I could be out every night of the week and I could always have my nose in my phone or my iPad or in books, and I just don't. There are
1: things that don't get done. Similar in my world, although I do not have kids, I work when I can work, and I don't work when I don't want right. to work. And you know, I get everything done I need to get done. But how much more purposeful to your children that the example you're showing is that you're making these sacrifices because you know that the work you're doing has an impact in the yep. life community. That it's not that you're necessarily sacrificing time with them to you know, just make more money, right? Right. You're sacrificing time with them. And they know that it's for a larger purpose and a larger community, which really makes a difference in what your, the values you're communicating to them, right?
2: Absolutely. And that's something that's become very clear to me over the last number of years. The fact that I work in the nonprofit sector makes it a lot more comfortable for me to be away from home when I have to be.
1: So are there any other thoughts you have, both from your work or your personal life or advice or Any other things that we haven't touched upon? No, I think this is a lot of me talking. (laughs) (laughs) That's the whole point. (laughs) Yeah, no,
2: this was fun. Awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward
1: to, you know, other pieces that you release. Thank you. What you're learning as you go through the motions. Four years is definitely a long time, but something tells me you're not done yet. Not even close. So I really do look forward to hearing and seeing more from you in the future. So thank you so much for your time, Laura. Thank you, Michelle. This was a lot of fun. Laura has taken the time to think deeply about the things she's learning through her work, crafting meaningful conclusions and disseminating that information for others to use. Think a little bit about your own work and what wisdom you have to impart onto others that might be able to help them change the way they do their work. One key thing I heard from Laura was the importance of aligning and galvanizing your organization around one central focus, and how key that is to bringing innovation, change, impact, growth, and adaptability. Many of Laura's writings and conclusions come from her experience in her unique community, trying to build innovation as a part of their culture, even if it means leaving some people behind. This inherently lends itself to pushback and discomfort. Change is never easy, but as you persist. Those positive changes become integrated into the organization's ethos, especially when the changes you are making align with that one focus and that you can clearly articulate what that focus is. Another thing I heard from Laura was the need to keep it quote unquote local. Be what your people need you to be, whether they are people who live in one geographic area, one particular age group, religious sect, or interest. Look at others, learn from others, but focus on your people. And lastly, be nice to our Canadian partners and keep in mind the financial barriers that they face in participating in the North American community. We want to thank our podcast partner for this episode, Ryan Ofman, with his Project SAT Math Workbook. If you're interested in partnering with Ryan and for more information about this project, please visit his website at ryanofman.wordpress.com. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound. and You can find previous episodes, guest bios, book recommendations, and more on our website, It's itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.
0: Liked this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at It's itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.